And it goes a little something like Hello, welcome to the Heme Sapiens podcast where diverse perspectives in healthcare converge. This is Amanda and Hana, and we will be discussing trauma and how it manifests in the body. We have invited Dr. Pena, a professor in the School of Law and Gender Studies Department at UCLA and the Executive Director of Four Freedoms to talk more about trauma with us. Trauma has many ways it can manifest within our bodies that can be physical, mental, or both. In one of her classes, Gender Studies 104, Dr. Pena has focused on decolonized forms of healing and identifying the origins of our own trauma. Um, thank you, Dr. Pena, for coming here to talk with us today. Um, so for our first question, we wanted to ask, like, how would you define trauma? All right. Yeah, let's get right into it. Let me just start off by saying thank you for having me. I appreciate y'all thinking about this issue and this topic because it is very near and dear to my heart. I always get sort of overly excited when I talk about these topics. So I have to kind of scale back. Talking about trauma shouldn't be such an excitable thing, but I get really excited about it. And Amanda, if you don't mind, before going into definition, I also just want to address something that you said a second ago, which is that trauma can be, um, what were the words you use? Psychological, emotional, physical? I think I said like physical or mental or both. Right. Yeah. That's actually part of the definition that it's always both. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because um, you can't really separate mind and body when you have a a trauma, when you experience something traumatic that perhaps um, began as psychological or emotional, it has an instant impact, an instant physical impact on the body. And the same is true when you experience some sort of physical, physical trauma to the body, a cut, a break, there's an instant emotional, psychological impact as well. You can't separate them. So trauma in defining it, one thing to keep in mind is that there's different disciplines that discuss trauma and the definitions from discipline to discipline might be you know, slightly different from one another. Medical professionals might have um, a different definition from a social worker um, and that's okay. The thing to keep in mind is that trauma is an injury, usually coming from something extremely stressful or dangerous or life-threatening where the person feels helpless in that situation and it breaks past ordinary coping and defense mechanisms. The important part there is that it breaks past ordinary coping and defense mechanisms, meaning that terrible things are happening all around the world all the time. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper, open up Instagram, whatever it is, and you can read, bear witness to, watch a video about something that's truly awful but we're not all traumatized all the time. And that's because we actually have some really amazing uh, protective and coping mechanisms that our body and brain and spirit have built um, to help us process, to help us get through, to help us um, detach, whatever it may be that keeps us um, capable of surviving this cruel, rough world that we live in. Even though there's also so much beauty and so much hope and inspiration, there's always difficult stuff too. So um, trauma is a result of something breaking past all those capacities that our body and brain and spirit has to withstand terrible things. And another important thing to keep in mind about trauma is that it, um, when people hear the word trauma, they often think of things that create trauma or result in trauma that are 
um, most commonly thought of, something like rape or other forms of sexual assault or a violent robbery or war. Um, but trauma is much more broad than that. It's, um, it's sort of an extreme of fear, violation, humiliation, grief, instability, insecurity, injury. So that means that it can include, you know, some, it can include like having a miscarriage can lead to trauma or being bullied can lead to trauma, having a demanding parent or teacher or partner, financial stress, certainly home and food insecurity can lead to trauma. Um, divorce has really high rates of trauma coming out, right? There's all these things that are sort of like normal everyday aspects of life, very common things that will lead to trauma, which is why we actually have pretty high rates of people who report having experienced trauma in their life. So what are some ways we can identify trauma manifesting in our own lives? Mm, in our own minds and bodies, right? Mm, yeah, um, trauma can look, uh, trauma manifests in lots of different ways. It's different from person to person. Oh, and another thing to keep in mind is that two people can experience, have like a very similar experience. Maybe they're even in the same place, experiencing the same quote, terrible thing at the same time. One of them will walk away having, having trauma and the other one will walk away and like be ready to go to the club, you know, two totally different responses to the same exact event. That is very normal because whether or not you walk away traumatized has everything to do with your own unique experience in this world, your lived experiences up until that moment, your socialization, your access to resources will play a big role, right? Maybe two people have the same experience and they're both shaken by it one has access to therapy and the other one doesn't, right? And so over time, um, it'll break through the coping mechanisms because they haven't had enough access to resources. So um, manifestations of trauma um, look different from person to person and they can be things like uh, loss of sleep is one, right? People report not being able to sleep very well after they experience something traumatic. And that's because, um, the part of our brain that is trying to process the fact that trauma has occurred, not process it, the part of our brain that holds the fact that trauma has occurred makes us feel like we need to stay alert and that we need to be vigilant because we might continue to be in danger. Oftentimes when people have experienced trauma, it's not something they experienced last week or 10 years ago. It's something that they feel right now. And so the vigilance is you know part of what keeps them awake because the brain is like don't go to sleep when we sleep we're very vulnerable and we can't be watchful for sleeping so loss of sleep is a really common one um people want to avoid any sort of stimuli that reminds them of the traumatic event right and so um, um people get might get triggered by a particular smell or a sound or a location um, and so they'll have a strong reaction to when they smell the smell or hear the thing or at their place. And that's called being triggered, right? Um, so that's another manifestation of trauma, having a very strong response to something that everybody else is totally fine with. And objectively speaking, maybe you would have been too before the traumatic event. I've already touched on this a little bit, but hypervigilance is another thing that happens. Um, um, it's interesting though, because hypervigilance can look different from person to person. So when 
you have experienced trauma and your brain and body have determined that you might constantly be in danger, you're looking for danger all around you. And danger can be defined lots of different ways. A very obvious way is, you know, being worried about a car hitting you or some sort of violence on the street. But it also can be being very vigilant of the danger of being embarrassed, being called on by a professor, being, you know, humiliated in class, being um, feeling as if you don't belong, feeling like you're going to go to a party and everybody's going to make fun of you. Like all of these things are forms of hypervigilance as well. Um, ways in which your body and brain are trying to avoid being hurt or feeling helpless or feeling um, not connected. Another one is disassociation. So disassociation is um, a coping mechanism. It's a survival mechanism, actually, that your body and brain have created um, to allow us to withstand, you know, particular moments or experiences. And it's when your physical body is present, it's in the space, it's in the room, it's having the experience, but you've disconnected. Um, mentally, psychologically, emotionally. Um, as I said at the top of our time together here, mind and body are connected. Disassociation is when you break that connection temporarily. So on the very extreme side of things, people report dissociating when they're experiencing violence, right? They'll say, it was as if I was watching it happen to me. I wasn't, I wasn't in my body in that moment. Um, and on the other hand, on the other side of things, people might dissociate when a particular topic comes up. You know, um, I've seen students do this in class where a topic that is fairly triggering for them comes up in class and they just, they're gone. Um, so when a student or somebody hears about a particular event that is triggering to them, they're still present. They're still sitting in their chair. They're still in their Zoom box but their mind has gone completely somewhere else in order to not have to deal with or face or process that particular topic. Um, so it's a form of dissociation. Some people go in and out of dissociation um, within five minutes or the few hours. Some people say dissociate it for a really long time. Um, again, it's a survival mechanism. And one of the ways to address that, of course, is to practice being grounded. Um, I, I think like the ways that you've like talked about it are really interesting. And I do remember learning about them in class. Like the one with association reminded me of, I think we learned about like, there are some people who like live their lives like completely numb and they don't really feel anything. And I think that's also one way. And I think the reading that we read, like talked about how to fix that. And like, how, how would you, what do you, what do you think about like that type of manifestation? Yeah. So the, um, Dissociation is a very particular kind of like, you know, checking out in order to be able to survive the moment or the experience. But there are other ways that people numb themselves to the pain, the constant sort of pain that they're experiencing as a result of trauma. Self-medication, right, around the use of drugs or alcohol is another way that uh, people numb themselves out. Um, there's also... Uh, Another way that folks will numb themselves from the pain is to sort of go extreme into a particular activity. Um, I had I had one, a friend once who was a really a long distance runner, and um, when you 
when you talk to her, part of the reason she was such a long distance runner and would run for hours and hours. And I'm not just talking about marathons. I'm talking about ultra marathons. I don't know if you all know what an ultra marathon is. It's a hundred miles. Um, and part of her reason for running that much was so that she can just focus on the running, feel the endorphins and not have to face the trauma that she'd experienced that she didn't want to talk about, that she didn't want to deal. Um, and so the sort of this extreme devotion to running was in some ways a way of her numbing herself from those past experiences. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other ways that people figure out, you know, the, um, to not have to feel, to not have to think about what happened because once it starts to surface, it hurts so much, they'd rather not deal with it at all. And we also, part of that is it's not individuals like quote unquote being weak. It's also, we don't have an infrastructure for folks to be able to deal with trauma in a way that feels healthy, where people feel seen, where people feel supported, right? If we just think about, if we just think about talk therapy, which Amanda, you've heard me talk about, I think talk therapy is amazing. And it's such a wonderful tool and resource we have, especially with people who are very gifted at what they do. I also don't think talk therapy is for everyone. You know, there's some people who benefit greatly from it and others who get nothing from it. And um, we haven't uh, developed in a very robust way, more access to healing modalities. And so instead what we have is a lot more people wanting to escape rather than metabolize and process through and get to the other side. I actually have a question. Um... You were saying that your friend would do ultra marathons in a sense to just, I guess, avoid dealing with the trauma. Would you say that is like an unhealthy coping mechanism or would you say because like she's not self-medicating or like harming herself, it is a good way to handle what she's yeah, going through? That's such a good question, Hannah. Um, I don't know if I would make a judgment of it one way or the other. And, you know, perhaps we shouldn't make those kinds of judgments of one another in general. I will say that quote unquote coping mechanisms that are harming you or destroying your ability to be in community with your loved ones or to pursue the things that you wanna pursue such as addiction to drugs and alcohol. Um, maybe we, we, you know, would, it would be easy to call it harmful or unhealthy. But even then, I don't know. I, I feel discomfort with, with judging any coping mechanism as healthy or unhealthy. In her case, you know, she was a very, a very healthy physical body. <laughs> um, and um, I think that it, it absolutely was playing the role that it needed to play in her life at that moment, at that time. I do think that people pursuing their own healing journeys, it has to, hope and it has to happen at their own time. I don't think people can be forced into it. If they are, then it generally doesn't work, you know, and it could backfire forcing someone to, you know, quote unquote, get help when you think they need to get help. It is true that people need supportive folks in their lives. It is true that people need to be mirrored and feel seen and feel like there's people who can bear witness, but having someone force you to do healing work is just generally not going to work. So I tend to think, Hannah, that her choices that she made um, were the right choices for her at that time. She did end up later um, being willing to talk about it more. <laughs> That's great. Um, so do you think that 
getting help with a professional is ultimately something that like we should strive to do if we are dealing with something that's interrupting our daily lives? I don't think that it necessarily has to be with a professional. I think that if people have access and resources to it, then wonderful, especially if you've got a good referral. Because I think referrals matter a lot when it comes to healing work. They're just like there are, you know, professors that when you take their classes, you know, they really love teaching. And there are other professors, when you take their classes, you're like, mm, you don't like teaching so much, do you? <laughs> you're doing it for these other things that make a lot of sense. And we're really grateful to you for your research and your writing and your scholarship. But I can tell that the teaching part is not the part that you love. This is true for every industry, right? There are people who take on professional positions for different reasons. Sometimes it's because they love the thing they're doing. Sometimes it's because they want to pay bills. Sometimes it's because they have a family to support, whatever it is, no judgment. But it means that some people are much more prepared to offer really effective treatment or services than others. So if there is professional help available and you've got a good referral and you've got resources to do it, then, oh, please pursue it. But there's also lots of healing to be had outside of professional spheres. In fact, um, study after study shows that merely being able to share your story with someone who is compassionately listening, lovingly mirroring you um, and supportively offering you a safe space, that in and itself can be healing. So friends can offer healing to each other, siblings, parents, families, loved ones, partners, even in professional spaces, you know, everyday people, we have the ability to offer it to each other. And then of course, there's everything in between, right? Between like a friend listening to you and seeking out professional psychological services. Um, there are so many other healing modalities available. You kind of briefly touched upon like how we don't really have a robust or like developed way of dealing with trauma. Kind of like I like in relation to like our next question, which was how do you think capitalism and white supremacy have affected the way we view treating trauma? I think um, just adding on to that, I think that it definitely affects the way that we are allowed to like deal with trauma and like how our infrastructure is like hindered by these systems. So like what do you think about like capitalism, white supremacy and trauma? Yeah, I mean, th thank you, Amanda, for that question. It's such an important one. I think systems of power and systems of oppression play sort of the greatest role in causing trauma, especially in our society. There's rarely a, you know, there's rarely an experience of trauma that I can't connect in some way to oppression or power, right? Whether it's classism um, or transphobia or sexism, racism, whatever it is, those are the kinds of things that end up leading to traumatic experiences. Whether it's acute, which means like a very specific experience that you've had on the extreme end, um, you know, uh, police brutality against black people, black men, black women, black trans folks um, at the hands of the state, right? Like that is a very acute experience of a traumatic moment that's based in white supremacy. But there's also, trauma can also be a result of something that's sort of just happened over time for a long time. Microaggressions that you experience at school, in a particular classroom, or wherever you work, 
if it's just happening over and over again and nobody ever says anything and there's nothing that can be done about it and there's no process in place to help protect folks, after a while, that also can um, lead to trauma. And so these, um, you know, these forms of uh, discrimination and displays of um, displays of hate or displays of ignorance, what you know, whatever ways that you want to to give them language, the impact is that people feel unsafe, people feel disempowered. Um, and if enough, enough of that occurs, either in a very intense moment or over time, trauma will result. And that's why it's no surprise to me. I think, I think that the statistic was that 84% of people in the United States, it might've been 74%, but I'm pretty sure it was 84% people in the United States report having experienced trauma at some point in their life. I remember um, actually taking a class once and we were talking about um, things outside of direct violence. So things that are like inherently like uh, racist, like that belong to like institutions, like obviously like our government, like real estate, things like that. And how like your zip code really affects your life and your access to healthy foods, your access to transportation, your access to certain types of jobs and how these things can manifest as trauma as well. But because of like where you are and where you're from, like it's just so much more harder for you to find ways to relieve or deal with the things you're going through. And oftentimes you don't realize that you are because your circumstances are so different than others. Exactly right. I mean, you know, we end up taking it like for granted. There's so much about my own life that I thought was very normal um, that everybody experienced in the same ways that I did until I lived somewhere different. You know, we were, um, for part of my life, we were on government benefits. There was four of us being raised by a single mom. Um, you know, just so much about the, the ways in which we lived our lives. I thought everybody was like that until we moved to a different neighborhood and realized, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not fair why why is it like this on one side and so different on the other so yeah you raise a really good point and um those disparities right the instability of home access to food um all of those like basic necessities in life um they all open themselves up and people are very vulnerable to trauma i have like a brief thing like i was doing the readings for this week and like that podcast where it talks about like rest and like napping as a way of kind of I guess like it is like a retaliation against like the way that we learn to like operate within capitalism but it's also a way to heal because I think a lot of people and of course in our hyper capitalist society of the United States we we believe we value productivity so much that it will come rest will um, be sacrificed in order for us to produce whether that is, you know, at a factory or in school, right? Or just like, if you are, um, even I hear influencers talk about this, you know, sort of their, the hustles of um, trying to create revenue um, forces them to continue to think about being productive and having those long to-do lists and such, which I'm not knocking all of that. You know, I think it's great to have, um, spirit and ambition and to endeavor to create and make and and do things uh, but i do think that we lose something here in the states around rest because it's not even 
it's so certainly it's sleep on a nightly basis that we need that we forego for some reason, right? We have, we humans have been evolving for thousands of years. We have never evolved out of our need for sleep. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. There have been enough studies that have shown that on average, people need between seven and 11 hours of sleep a night, meaning um, somewhere between seven and 11. If you're getting less than seven, you're not getting enough sleep. Right? People are perpetually sleep deprived in the society. And it translates to so many other things. We're also a country that doesn't take vacation. We're also a country that works on the weekends, right? Um, and works nights. So um, we're also a country where people will miss funerals and weddings and really important things because they're working. So it, it isn't just about sleep on a nightly basis, which is hugely important, deeply necessary to the human body. Um, it's also rest in general, like being able to balance our lives uh, with stuff that gives us the opportunity to reset. And if you are attempting to heal from trauma, you're going to need rest. That goes without a doubt. Um, I kind of wanted to ask a question and bringing it back to what we were talking about um, earlier, just about how um, trauma manifests in different ways because of institutions and things we go through. Um, and I wanted to know if you could speak on how generational trauma manifests like physically and mentally as well. Yeah, generational trauma, it's, it's a fascinating one for me because it was something that I noticed in my own family on both sides. Um, and there's a couple of different ways to think about generational trauma. So one is epigenetics, which I know really excites Amanda. Um, and if I can attempt to put language around this in a way that will not embarrass me in front of my neuroscience colleagues. Epigenetics is when um, someone experiences a very stressful situation, perhaps traumatic, and um, it changes genetic markers or flags in their own system, and that gets passed on to the next generation. Um, so, if someone experiences something really stressful around, I don't know, fire, perhaps, um, something along having a fear of fire, maybe that's not a good example because everybody should have a healthy fear of fire, but um, maybe it's around a particular smell. I don't know. Actually, that's, let's talk about what they let's did with mice. So um, with mice, they would like spray a particular smell and then also give a little electric shock to the mouse when it was smelling it. Um, and so of course, over time, the mice became very scared of the smell, even when the spray was being sprayed, but there was no more electric shocks. The mice were still very scared of the smell, right? And they found the next generation of mice from those ones who had been shocked were also scared of the smell. And of course, there was a control group of mice who had never been shocked and their children or their children, their offspring, what do you call them for mice? Their babies, their babies were not scared of the smell. So clearly this was something that had been passed on um, from one generation to the next. The good news is, is that um, they can be sort of desensitized um, to that fear. If over and over again, they're smelling it and nothing bad happens, then the next generation or the generation after will not continue to, um, um, to you know, experience that fear. So there is controversy 
around whether epigenetics is actually um, something that has been proven to exist in humans. Um, this has been going on for a few decades. I started paying attention to it maybe in the early aughts. I happen to believe epigenetics is definitely true. <laughs> I know that the literature isn't there yet, um, but I think that these things happen just from having paid attention in my own family, you know, and seeing, um, seeing very specific responses to um, external stimuli and that being completely replicated by the next generation and having no other reason to understand it but through epigenetics. So that's one form of generational trauma, Hana. But another form is um, when cycles of harm continue from generation to generation uh, because nobody has had the wherewithal or capacity or resources to break a cycle of harm and so that trauma just ends up getting handed off. So domestic violence is one example of a trauma that continues to get passed on generation to generation. Um, the, you know, we could list all the things that we know that happen in families, including child sexual abuse um, and uh, you know, addiction and such, these things get handed off in a very, um, in a very explicit sort of way. And then there's another form of generational trauma that takes place that occurs, which is um, when something really terrible happens for somebody and um, they decide to respond to that terrible thing with a certain, with a set of particular behaviors and they pass those behaviors onto their children. Maybe they explain to them why, maybe they don't, but the effects of that trauma get passed on generation to generation. And so the example that I often use is, um, that I know someone who um, died by suicide in a closet. And um, from then on, members of their, that person's family, was, they weren't okay with closing closet doors. They didn't feel like closet doors should ever be closed. And they passed that on to the next generation. Next generation had no idea, but they just knew they could never close closet doors. So it's less about generational trauma being passed on, but more like the impacts, the effects, the responses, the reactions to it often get passed on. In that way, it was, you know, sort of benign, closet doors are no big a deal, but you can imagine other responses being much more harmful and those getting passed on too. So Hana, I'm really interested in this idea of generational trauma as well. And I'm most interested and most excited by the idea of people breaking the cycles, right? You being the one that actually pursues some form of healing um, and uh, being the stop right? Like it stops with you. That trauma is no longer going to be handed off. It will stay where it's supposed to stay. And instead you'll, you know, you'll be the beginning of a new opportunity for your progeny. So I wanted to ask briefly, since we've talked a lot about like what causes trauma and like what the types of trauma that we do experience. Um, so I know in our class, we talk a lot about like these colonized approaches and you've brought in a lot of different types of healers. So I wanted to ask, like, what does it mean to have a decolonized approach to healing trauma? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, when I say decolonized approaches to healing, what I mean are um, healing modalities that maybe have not been admitted into the canon of Western medicine, right? So healing modalities that don't have the benefit of having been studied peer-reviewed, 
have a pharmaceutical that's attached to it. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't pharmaceuticals that are great for treatment. I'm just saying that those ones, because there's often a profit attached, there has been um, an incentive to actually study it. Whereas there's lots of other healing modalities that exist that wouldn't necessarily have a profit attached. And so nobody's bothered to test or study. Um, and for that reason, we don't have literature that backs it up, except for that we have centuries of communities that have practiced these particular healing modalities that know that they work, you know? And so it's twofold. One, um, decolonized modes of healing um, maybe don't have literature that supports them. And it's also the idea that we don't need published, you know, scholarship in order to trust that a particular healing modality would work. We can just, you know, have a conversation with our grandparent about it. Or as I said, look to centuries of practices that have existed or um, have just been present to it and seen it happen and know for yourself, you know, your own intuition tells you that this is something good for you. Um, I do believe that everybody has intuition, strong intuition, um, that the only difference is some people have learned to listen to that voice and others maybe haven't yet but I think your intuition has really good information about what is good for you, unique to you, because every single human being on earth, every, what are we, close to 8 billion? Or is it close to 9 billion? Um, every single person is unique. You know, every single one is a one of a kind and has different needs. So there are healing modalities that exist that would be wonderful for one person and terrible for someone else. That's normal. Thank you for that. Um... I don't know if you saw our last question. I don't know if you feel comfortable answering it, but what are your favorite ways or the best ways that you personally deal with trauma? Oh, personally, I wasn't looking at the list of questions. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, okay, I'll be willing to share. Let's see. I've had a lot of, so I had to go on a healing journey that was perhaps a decade or two long. <laughs> um, I've spoken about this publicly. So I experienced sexual assault and um, was quite traumatized by it. It made me, mm, I got to a place where I didn't think that we had any reason for the existence of men in our world. Mm, and um, it was really hurtful um, for me to behave in those ways <laughs> for all the men in my life. Um, so after um, a couple of experiences, I realized I really needed to get help um, around this and do some good healing work around it, which I'm happy to report I have. And I'm now um, in a space where I can see that there is harm and beauty within every single demographic in the world. <laughs> Um, but the healing modalities, it worked really well for me. One was something that is often referred to as hypnotherapy. Um, I was not a fan or excited about the prospect of hypnotherapy when I first heard the words, because I thought someone was going to be sitting inside of me, like dangling a necklace back and forth saying, you're getting sleepy, which I did not want to do. Uh, but luckily, I had a really great practitioner who was really good at what she did. She loved her work. And hypnotherapy, in my experience, it might be different from other people's experiences. 
um, she just invited me into uh, a safe place, which for me was the ocean. And uh, I had my eyes closed and I was laying back and, you know, she was sort of giving me prompts that I was then manifesting in my own vision. And um, she led me through a few questions. And so I ended up myself in my early 20s. I was on an island holding um, the hand of myself as a little girl and then also holding the hand of myself as an elder as like a woman in her 80s she's really cute she had long silver hair and it was in a braid and she had lots of wrinkles which I'm well on my way to being right now so the three of us held hands as we were walking along in the island and through the prompting of this practitioner I was able to um, get to a place where I had a different experience altogether and I was able to rewrite it um, and from just that one session I was able to pivot in a different direction I'm not saying that I was healed from that one session but I had a completely new reorientation of my experiences and what I could do with them and, you know, I, I had a few more sessions with her and it was really amazing. I can say that from that work with her, um, I, it was like a whole new me, you know, the, that old me um, was gone after that. And I only brought with me the pieces that continued to serve me. I also get a lot of healing um, from meditation Meditation, it turns out, is one of the most effective ways to treat trauma. In fact, uh, people with PTSD, uh, it's been reported that there's more, much more effective healing from meditation, especially mindful meditation, than any other form of healing or treatment. And so for me, um, meditation works really well to help keep me, like for me, it's maintenance at this point. <laughs> Um, but it helps keep me healthy. I also am somebody who gets a lot out of body work. So there's different healing modalities that um, try to speak to sort of the somatic impacts of trauma. And so somatic healing, um, even something as simple as massage therapy can do it for some people, but for others, you know, um, there's like a whole um, discipline of the somatic arts that they tap into. There's also Reiki, um, cranial sacral therapy, um, acupuncture, like all of these things are sort of tapping into the same thing, which is that the body holds trauma. Um, there's a lot written about how different injuries or body pains or aches come from trauma or stress or things that have yet to be processed out of the body. And so all of those things that I just listed out, acupuncture, Reiki, et cetera, help release from the body. There's also um, um, people talk about like dance therapy and other forms of physical therapy where you're doing the physical movement, but you're also being prompted to think about certain things or to talk about certain things so that it's coming out of your body. So it's being released or purged perhaps. Some people don't like talking about it as release. Some people like talking about it as integrating into your body in a healthy way. I think either one works, whatever feels right to you. And the last healing modality um, that really helps me is thinking about um, chakras. 
So um, I've worked with multiple practitioners that have helped um, people sort of visualize chakras, um, you know, the color of your chakra, et cetera, and to see which chakra it is that it's experiencing or has been holding the harm or holding the trauma. And then being able to move that out through different either visualizations or um, exercises or activities. Those are some of my favorites. There's so many more though, so many more. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. I've learned so much in this short amount of time. I wish I was in your class too. <laughs> Sounds like a great class. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Those were all the questions we actually had for you. And we finished right on time too as well. Um, Amanda, if you had anything else that you wanted to ask. No, I, I still have more questions, but like we are out of time technically. But I think, yeah, I think this interview was so interesting. And it's honestly really changed. I mean, this class and this interview has really changed the way I view like healing and trauma. And I think it makes me want to explore like other modalities that I haven't previously thought about. Because I mean, I did know about like meditation and talk therapy, but I didn't really think about like maybe like spiritual types of um, healing and stuff. And I think that would definitely be helpful, at least to me. So I think I will be looking more into that later. But um, I, yes, like Hannah said, thank you so, so much for coming here and letting us interview you and like sharing parts of your experiences and your expertise on trauma. Thank you both for having me. It's again, it's one of my favorite topics and um, your excitement around it makes me even more excited, you know, to continue to talk about it. So thank you for creating this podcast and for continuing to build it. I'm sure it is um, a huge benefit to all your listeners to be able to um, be impacted by the issues that you find most interesting. So long to our fellow Heme Sapiens. We look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. And it goes a little something like...